Part 13. Coralejo Reposado. I hadn't spoken to her in years, so calling her now for money was doomed from the start. She refused to pay for my apartment, so I reminded her that she had never once paid child support. My attacks became more personal as I transitioned from reminding her she had failed her fiscal responsibility to me, to how she had also neglected me emotionally. I pointed out that she had missed soccer games, my high school graduation, wasn't there to comfort me after bad breakups, and hadn't helped me with my schoolwork like a typical parent. Instead, I was alone, trying not to die from alcohol poisoning, and nobody cared. We went back to not speaking. I saw her again at Shannon's wedding a couple of years later. Everyone was drinking on the night of the reception, and I was dancing the night away with my cousins. It was a good night, and I had a lot of fun, but I went to bed earlier than everyone else did. I learned from you and Shannon the following day that as the party continued through the night, my mom was up to her old tricks and told everyone who would listen about your infidelity and how you used to beat her. This was supposed to be a celebration. It was Shannon's night, but all of Renee's extended family was there, and they hadn't heard my mom's stories yet. Shannon was so pissed at her that night, but he conveniently forgets that he does the same shit. He hates our mom for how she is, but he's more like her than he wants to admit. We recently had a family vacation in California and our stepsister Alexi brought her new boyfriend. Everyone flew in and crammed into a little bed and breakfast place for the week. We were there maybe two days before Shannon had the poor kid in a corner, spilling all his mom drama to someone that would never meet her. But it was someone who hadn't heard his story yet, so he had to share. He rushed through the classics, her affair, the rumors, faking cancer, how he'd never let her around his kids, all the things he had been reminding me of literally every time we got together. He tells these stories indiscriminately, just as my mom did that night with Renee's family. You both told me what she did that night, but you asked me not to say anything to her. She was supposed to give me a ride to the airport, so we could spend a little bit more time together before I flew back. You and Shannon were going to follow in a separate car, and we'd be flying back together. I got in the car, and as soon as she put it into drive, I said, Why did you tell everyone Dad used to beat you? She slammed the brakes, unlocked the doors, popped her trunk, and screamed, Get out! I sat there, waiting for an answer, but she reached across my chest and opened the door for me. You and Shannon looked surprised as I pulled my bags out of her trunk and started heading back to your car. We hadn't even gotten out of the hotel parking lot yet. Another two years would pass without any contact from her when I finally saw her for the last time at Olivia's birthday party. We all came to Montana to celebrate and crowded into my mom's tiny house on 3rd Street. My mom had a work friend over who was closer to my age. We drank heavily and were having fun getting to know each other. Out of nowhere, she asked me, How can you live with your dad? I was mid-sip of a margarita that had too much Coralejo Reposado. What? I asked, licking the sour frost from my lips. What do you mean? You know, like, after everything your dad did to your mom. How could you live with him after all that? She was sitting with her hands in her lap, staring at me intently, unaware of how deeply she had just waded into our family drama. I could feel the heat in my cheeks as the tequila augmented my fight-or-flight response. Shannon had groomed me for this inevitability. Most of my interactions with my brother were of him retelling the same old stories about our mom and reminding me about the lies she was spreading. 
I once told him I was struggling with alcoholism and that there were things he said to me that acted as a trigger for my dependence. I told him it would help me immensely if we could talk about it and asked if he'd help me work through it. He ignored my messages and never spoke with me about it. On the other hand, if I were to suggest I wanted to talk about how much I hated our mom, he'd text me back nearly instantaneously. He kept me informed about what she was saying around town, and I heard things for myself through the grapevine, but this was the first time I had been confronted with it so openly and under such a judgmental pretense. My hands were shaking, I was livid, but I wanted to hear what she thought she knew, so I asked her, what exactly did my dad do? Her face scrunched, and she seemed confused. Uh, you don't know. She laughed. Your dad was a total asshole to her. Oh, he was. I looked dumbfounded. Yeah, he used to beat her and then told people she had an affair to cover up the abuse. Then you picked to go live with him anyway. I just can't believe you would turn your back on her like that. She shrugged and rolled her eyes while she sipped her drink. I had never been so angry in my entire life. Her unprovoked attack solidified everything my brother had been telling me about our mom. It's done that my life, and everything I struggled with, had been boiled down to such simplicity. Tears filled my eyes, and I made the face Anakin Skywalker makes in Revenge of the Sith, right before he kills the younglings. All the resentment I had let build up in me about my mom, I unleashed on this poor woman. She was nothing more than an innocent spectator who was dumb enough to intervene. She didn't know either of us. All she knew was what my mom told her, and she had no reason not to believe her. It didn't matter, though. She had stuck her nose where it didn't belong. I caused such a big scene that everyone at the party ran into the house to separate me from this girl and to stop me from suffocating her with my verbal bombardment. You and Shannon drug me outside, kicking and screaming, and we walked down the street. You and I had such a toxic relationship that we couldn't even be in the same room together for longer than a few minutes, but I still felt protective of you. I probably cared more about what my mom said about you than you did. I wanted the truth, and the longer this went on, the more it looked like my mom really was sick. I told you guys what her friend had said, and then we laughed at some of the crazy shit I said in response. I eventually calmed down enough to come back to the house. My mom had kicked her friend out, but I felt so stupid walking back into the party. I felt everyone's eyes on me as they judged me for my inappropriate outburst. This would mark only the first time I would feel like the out-of-control alcoholic uncle. After everyone left, my mom and I had a long talk. She couldn't avoid the conversation anymore because her friend had run her fat mouth, and she couldn't deny that her friend had to have heard it all from her. She tried to dodge the subject anyway, but I was persistent. No, tell me exactly when he used to beat you, I said with my hands on my hips, standing over her. She was sitting in her recliner, trying to maintain eye contact with me, but she kept looking away every time I pressed her for information. He used to get really mad at me, Denver, she said, and then tried to move past it by saying I was too upset to talk about it. No, when did he beat you? Tell me. I was there, and I don't remember that happening. I was starting to pace, trying to expend some energy. The day after I caught him at the airport, you remember, you walked in on us. He was beating you. I thought he'd just pushed you onto the bed. I stopped pacing and walked over to her. No, but he was so mad. I thought he was going to. She shook her head as if she was reliving a bad memory. I thought he was going to kill me. Wait, I thought you were hitting him. 
I sat on the couch next to her and listened. I had heard this story before, but it seemed details about it had changed. I did hit him because I knew he was lying to me. I slapped him across the face, and then I was going to hit him again, but he grabbed my wrists and pushed me toward the bed. As I stumbled backward, my legs hit the footboard, and I fell onto the bed. I don't know what he would have done if you hadn't walked in. You walking in saved my life. So then that's it. I asked, sitting on the edge of my seat. That's the only time, you think he might have beat you if I hadn't walked in, he never actually beat you. Well, I mean, he's gotten angry at me plenty of times. She looked frustrated that I wasn't getting it. Do you see how that isn't beating you? I shouted as I stood up, you're going around telling people my dad used to beat you. Well, it is verbal abuse. She said, that's not what you're telling people, you're not telling people he verbally beat you, fuck. If anything, it sounds like you used to beat him. I can't do this anymore. You're just sick. I left the room and decided Shannon was right. This happened every time I saw her. Her presence in my life was nothing but conflict, lies, and deception. I was better off without her. It had gotten too hard being around her, which meant it was easier to be away from her. So I wrote her off. I had Shannon's support. He said he was writing her off too. He vowed he would never let her around his kids. All she does is hurt people, he'd say. He was proud of me for finally growing a pair and walking away from her. It didn't feel much different anyway. We went back to not talking again, but I planned to avoid her from there on out. I wasn't sure what to do about it when, two years later, I heard she had cancer. Part 14. Polyps I felt awful for her but I didn't think she'd want to hear from me. I also felt like she was responsible for our lack of a relationship, so if she wanted to hear from me, she would have to call me first. My brother acted as if he didn't care, which made me feel less guilty for not reaching out to her. Every time I'd talk to him, he'd bash her for her lies and remind me how she wasn't ever there for me. He'd tell me I was right to write her off, saying it wouldn't be worth the pain if I reached out to her. That's why I was surprised to hear she was not only living with him, but he was taking her to all her chemotherapy treatments. She had developed breast cancer and elected to have a double mastectomy. She started treatment and stayed with Shannon because he lived closer to her oncologist. At one of her appointments, the doctor explained her treatment options based on the staging of her cancer. According to Shannon, the described diagnosis did not match the staging she was telling people she had. On edge and untrusting of her, he concluded that she was lying about her cancer and started telling everyone. Considering everything that had happened until this point, I wasn't even surprised she would do such a thing, so I never took her diagnosis seriously. Assuming she was making it up for attention, I refused to feed into it and continued to keep my distance from her. Looking back on it now, I don't think she faked her cancer. Insurance companies won't cover chemotherapy because you want attention. I believe Shannon expected too much from her at that moment. He loves to talk about her and say how stupid she is, how she hadn't graduated from high school and struggled to read. Despite her academic shortcomings, he expects her to have a good grasp of oncology and the staging of metastasis. I don't think there was anything sinister happening, but I do believe she likely exaggerated what she was going through for a very simple and very human reason. I was able to better empathize with that feeling after I had my own health scare recently. I had used alcohol and drugs to silence the guilt and shame I felt for being different from you and Shannon. 
When I got off drugs and quit drinking, the guilt and shame manifested as an anxiety disorder for perfectionism. I started grinding my teeth at night and developed sleep apnea. I started having anxiety attacks, and my stomach was riddled with ulcers causing me to double over in pain after eating. The ulcers got so bad that the proteins I ate were coming into contact with my bloodstream from within my stomach. This caused my body to develop antibodies to the food I ate. The constant inflammation led to a diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis and gastroparesis. My doctor put me on an elimination diet that prevented me from eating peanuts, corn, soy, wheat, dairy, and caffeine. I had temporary relief with the diet, but within a few months, I started shitting blood and had to schedule a colonoscopy. During the procedure, my doctor found five large precancerous adenomas in my colon. Considering I was 15 years away from having a routine checkup, I would have likely had advanced colon cancer if I had waited until I was 50 years old. Luckily, we caught it early, and they removed the polyps. I wasn't just cancer-free. I never had cancer. That didn't change the fact that I was emotionally inconsolable. I had two beautiful babies, and I was so scared that my lifespan had been drastically shortened and I felt cheated that I might miss out on their lives. I remember sitting on the couch, unable to eat and feeling too weak to move, when tears filled my eyes as I tried to explain to Jade why I couldn't play with him outside. I was being overly dramatic, it's not as if I wasn't going to get better. I got a brief glimpse into the emotional toll my mother went through when she felt a lump in her breast for the first time. Her stories about us had long since run dry of their juicy gossip and pity. For better or worse, her very real cancer provided a pipeline to more love and support than she could falsely generate by herself. Cancer is scary enough, there is no need to lie about your staging. Any discrepancies in her story are easily explained by an overly dramatic but warranted response to her mortality. It became more evident to me when I heard her botch the explanation of the colon cancer she said she had. She told me she had an aggressive form of colon cancer that was removed. Upon closer inspection of her medical history, it turns out she had a few precancerous polyps removed, just like I had. It's true, if you don't remove the polyps, they have the potential of becoming cancer. If they develop into cancer, colon cancer can be very aggressive, considering how easily it can mud size. The fact remains, until those polyps mutate into cancer, they're just benign growths. When I heard her explain her colon cancer history, I didn't hear someone who was lying for attention. I heard someone over-exaggerating about the severity of colon polyps. I don't know if Shannon didn't want to let her be dramatic in her moment of fear or if he thought she was trying to get away with something, but the tension between them was balancing on years of repressed trauma, and he began to read between the lines of her actions. It came to a head when my mom tried to share her ice cream with the toddler-aged Olivia when she was still undergoing her chemo for breast cancer. She was with Shannon and Renee visiting Renee's family. They were all enjoying some ice cream and a cone. My mom offered Olivia a small bite from her cone, but Renee quickly reprimanded her. Due to the medicine's toxicity, she wasn't supposed to share food or drink while undergoing chemotherapy. Afraid it could give Olivia sores on her mouth, they asked her not to share. My mom took it as an attack on her grandmotherliness and thought they wanted to keep Olivia away from her. Not wanting to be treated like a pariah, she stood up and angrily slammed the ice cream cone onto the ground with a loud splat. They tried to calm her down, but she unfairly accused everyone of not being there for her, and she stormed out of the party and went straight to her email. The letter she wrote was addressed to Renee, Shannon, and me. 
She wanted to let us know how awful we were and how we had never been there for her. She was removing us from her will and said she never wanted to hear from any of us ever again. I wrote the following song soon after that, but it still feels relevant today. tried to have a relationship with my mom. We'd have our time apart, and the absence would have restored our fondness for each other. It wouldn't take long for us to be reminded about why we fought so much, and we'd pick up right where we left off. When she wrote the email and years passed without contact from her, I started doing some soul-searching, hoping to understand how my mother could give up on me. 
She kept tabs on my life through vague gossip that she could get through other people's social media. She knew I played in a band and some other bits of random information, but she didn't know anything about who I was as a person. I don't know that she could ever see the person I wanted her to see me as because she had convinced herself I was a terrible son, and anything outside of that jeopardized the story she was creating for herself to inhabit. The cold that was understood was an admission that we were both giving up on each other. We didn't expect anything from one another, and it made it easier to deal with if we kept a certain level of coldness in our relationship. It would hurt my feelings if she didn't call on my birthday, but I would care less if I didn't expect her to call. The coldness became understood, but I could never comprehend how we had gotten to that point. If this book is any indication, I spend a lot of time and energy trying to understand why these things in our lives are the way they are. When I started writing this book, I had lots to say about my relationship with you and Shannon. I had so much festering in my brain. Combined with my deep-seated dedication to improving our relationships, I agonized over my understanding of you both on a near-daily basis. Those chapters flowed out onto the page with little to no effort because I knew you both better than my mom. You and Shannon were the two that I felt like I understood on some level. As I started diving into the chapter about my mom, I hit something neighboring writer's block. I've accessed things in this book about you and Shannon that have long been hidden behind closed doors in my subconscious. As I tried the knob on these mental doors, the door would swing open with a violent whoosh, and all of the garbage crammed behind them spilled out freely. As I tried the knob on my mother's door, I found it was locked, and I had long since thrown away the key to accessing any of the memories I once had of her. She was the one that I just couldn't see. I felt like my mom had always walked all over me and had taken our relationship for granted. The second verse is me asking myself if our relationship had gotten so bad because of her actions. Had our relationship soured because of what she always does, or was it me? It was all her fault, right? I was letting myself off the hook a little because I was certainly no angel as a teenager, but I had been so much worse to you than I had ever been to her. If she felt I had done anything so horrible that she could hold it against me, she would be shocked to learn what I had put you through every day. After the email she sent, it felt like she was no longer walking all over me, she was running. When I finally decided to walk away from her, I wasn't sure of myself and felt guilty, especially after I heard that she was undergoing chemotherapy. I started doubting that she was faking her cancer, as Shannon had described. I wondered if I had let her go too quickly and if I should have tried harder to keep a relationship with her. Ultimately, I decided I didn't want to know, I just wanted her to go away, so I wrote her off too. After I decided to write her off, I often thought about how hard it was and if it was easier for her to let me go. She made abandoning me look so easy and I wished I could move on so effortlessly. I would get angry. Why can't you just be normal? Why aren't you interested in my life? As more time passed, I realized the wounds being made would make it impossible to have a meaningful relationship ever again. When she was diagnosed with cancer, I think she thought she would get a free pass on everything that had happened. I think she thought her kids would shower her with love and compassion. Her husband would feel so guilty for having cheated on her that he'd finally admit everything he had done. She had found a glorious silver lining in a terrible diagnosis. And when that forgiveness never came, she had to pick which character she would keep in the new chapters of her life that she would be writing herself. On the outside, she played the victim of circumstance. A poor woman whose family had taken advantage of her was now being slapped with an unfair death sentence. She had convinced herself that she had been severely mistreated and that life was unfair. 
Her life had turned out so terrible that she wouldn't wish her circumstances upon anyone. Since you and I were in Texas, unable to defend ourselves, those around her fell for her stories. She was too caught up in playing the victim that she fell for her own lies and missed out on her children's lives. Nobody wins in these kinds of mind games when everyone falls for something. Hearing the rumors and getting the email from her about how bad I had been to her made me angry at first. With time and age, I started rethinking who I was and how I was to her. She felt I mistreated her when she was going through her cancer treatment, but we had long since stopped talking by then. Not calling or visiting was the only awful thing that I did to her during that time. She forgets that we had gotten to that point long before the cancer. I didn't treat her poorly because she had cancer. She just happened to get cancer after I had decided my life was better without her. Regardless, I did try to reach out to her. I was leaving for the Air Force and waiting for my deployment in Utah. I tried opening that door again when I wrote her a letter and hand-delivered it to her mailbox. I drove back to the city I grew up in but kept a low profile like an undercover spy. I didn't want anyone who knew me to see I was in town. I went to a bar under the big bridge six blocks from her house and attempted to work up the courage to drive down the street. I eventually got more drunk than brave and checked into my hotel instead. On the way out of town, I snuck up to her mailbox and threw my letter in before running away. I had written about how much I regretted that we didn't have a relationship and how I was nervous about the military. I hadn't told anyone the real reason why I was joining, and I had intentionally not planned an exit strategy. I was hoping for death, so this letter was me saying goodbye to my mother. I found out many years later that she hadn't even read the letter and just threw it away. She meant what she had said in that email. It was simply like that. Part 15. Stigma I never got over my mom, but I did learn to stop thinking about her. I locked every doorway that led to anything about her. I focused on my future and forgot about my past. Before long, I could barely remember my childhood, but this was preferred if it meant I could move on from the sorrow of my young adult life. I built walls around her memory, and she ceased to exist. When Pepper was three years old, she asked me why I didn't have a mom, and I was at a loss for words. I hadn't thought of my relationship with my mom in such simplistic terms. Why didn't I have a mom? Damn, where do I begin? When I realized I didn't have a good answer for her, I told her I didn't know. I fought the urge to tell Pepper her grandma was sick. I realized that might have been why you had said it to me. It would have been easier than trying to explain something I didn't understand myself. I told Pepper that I did have a mom, but I didn't talk to her much and it had been a long time since I had. Pepper wanted to talk to her grandma, but I was afraid. Shannon had scared me about letting our mom around our kids. I'm not sure exactly what I was afraid of, but I knew I didn't feel comfortable granting her that access. Pepper had begun to actively chip away at the walls I built to protect us. Daphne's mom was the next person to start weakening the barrier. I had a rocky relationship with Daphne's family at first. They didn't trust me, and they thought I would take their daughter away on some military deployment. Our wedding was almost a disaster with how angry her parents were. We had another rough patch when the Air Force sent me to tech school to become a laboratory technician. When I finished tech school, we battled their emotions again when we moved an hour away. There were times I questioned whether or not I should have married Daphne. I had legitimate mommy issues, and now it felt like I was marrying into a similar situation that I had just navigated myself out of successfully. 
Daphne's mom reminded me so much of my mom that I was scared to get close to her. She was lovely and creative, but she'd get emotionally aggressive and shut everyone out for weeks when things got stressful. I felt uniquely qualified to deal with it, having survived everything I went through with my mom. However, I quickly noticed several things about how Daphne's family treated their matriarch. The first person I watched was Daphne. Daphne was so patient with her mom. She never got angry with her mom when she was upset with us. Instead, Daphne would try her best to accommodate her mother. Sometimes she could calm her down, but other times, she'd have to walk away and give her mom some space. My mother-in-law would avoid us for a few weeks, but then the hard feelings would pass, and everyone would be okay. My wife's never-ending patience reminded me of the tolerance I once had for my mother. My father-in-law was the next person I learned from by watching his actions. I used to get so frustrated with him because he would side with his wife regardless of whether or not he agreed with her. I'd have a relatively good relationship with him. My mother-in-law would get angry with us, and then he'd suddenly change his tune to match that of his wife. I would get so frustrated that he wouldn't stick up for us. I didn't think he had a voice of his own, but as I got to know him better, I learned to respect what he was doing and realized just how smart he was. He was playing the role he was supposed to play, his wife's partner. I saw his unwavering devotion to her and realized how integral he is to keeping the family together. It would be easy to tell his daughters, your mom is just sick. It was never him and his girls against their mother. Instead, he would dutifully follow his wife and support her no matter what, and the girls were expected to do the same. I was inspired by watching them interact with each other's weaknesses by using their individual strengths to lift each other up. I couldn't help feeling guilty about not being there for my mom, regardless of whether she deserved it or not. I had been trained to think of this behavior as coming from someone who was sick and undeserving of understanding. I had developed a stigma toward mental health that I had immediately applied to my mother-in-law. This way of thinking could have prevented me from being welcomed into a family I admire and love. Daphne's mom wasn't sick. She was mad. She was being protective of her daughter and the family structure they had built. Her husband supported her, and they were rightfully unwilling to compromise that structure until they trusted me enough, as good parents should, to be comfortable supporting those you love even when they force you out of your comfort zone is the definition of unconditional love, and I saw Daphne and her dad live by that every day. The longer I spent around her family, the better they got to know me, and they began trusting me more. I stopped being the source of their fears, and I felt that I had become part of the family. I grew close to Daphne's mom and started thinking of her as my own mother. She had become the mom I wished mine had been. She admires my creative side and consistently reminds me of how much she loves me. I feel so lucky to have her in my life, and I love her very much. Seeing Daphne's family work together, and having her mother welcome me as her son, was healing to my inner child. Her family unit had made a few more significant chips in the walls I had built to protect me from my mother. I stopped thinking of my mom as being sick. When you and I had our argument in the backyard, I was filled with pretense and the walls came crashing down.